mindfulness mode. Practice the presence of whatever that power is in your life through breathing, through looking, through seeing, through being open. Just open your heart. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe, I love I love when people come up with interesting analogies and they, uh, they're, they're really creative in the way that they communicate and they can help you with your life through their talented method of communication. And that's exactly what describes the woman who is with me today. She has taken a concept and she's very skillfully and very creatively written a book which is so helpful and will be so helpful to hundreds and thousands of people. I have Hope Anderson with me today. Hope, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am in mindfulness mode, absolutely. That's great. Hope is the author of this book. It's called How to Remodel a Life. And it is really an interesting book. It says on the front, a guide to living well with alcoholism and bipolar disorder. So it's a book about a very serious topic and she has connected the idea of remodeling your home and use that as an analogy and has gone through and, and told us so much about her life and how we can improve ours. So she's an author, a poet, a screenwriter, and a coach, and she's published novels and poetry and, and her poetry has actually appeared in magazines and reviews in the U.S. and abroad. And in 2019, get this, she was invited to share her work at the Ledbury Poetry Festival in England. Wow, I can't wait to talk to you about that, Hope. And uh, she is a native of New England. She lives in North Carolina with her husband of 30 years, and they have three grown children. So I'm so excited to talk to you, Hope, about this book and how it was conceived and how you created it and about your life. But first, I want to ask you, what does mindfulness mean to you, Hope? Well, I thought about this a little bit. Um, and I, I have to um, share with you something from my uh, teen years. I was in a play called Our Town by Thornton Wilder, and I played Emily. And at one point, Emily asks the stage manager, do human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? And the stage manager replies, some do, saints and poets maybe and i think that's what mindfulness is mindfulness is realizing life every minute in your body your mind and your spirit to me that's mindfulness well it's so interesting you use that that quote because i know you're a poet and some would call you a saint for having the courage to do what you did the courage to meet alcoholism face to face and and deal with it and do something about it but then to go the next step and write this book and before i hit record you said well the book kind of wrote itself but uh, you know what i think it takes a lot of courage to write a book like this and even in at the very beginning of the book you wrote that you said this book is dedicated to anyone who has the courage 
to change their life for the good. So let's talk about courage. Let's talk about the courage, first of all, that it took to write this book. Did it take a lot of courage? It did take a lot of courage because it took um, it took diving deep and it took being honest with myself, being uh, going to places that felt uncomfortable and being willing to really, really, really look at myself and my behavior and not blame other people, not hide behind um, old narratives, um, but to really examine my life. And, you know, I think that that is, um, that takes courage to do that, definitely. It really does. On page 114 or so, round I guess it was around the middle of the book, you started talking about your mother and how she thought of her six perfect girls as, you know, like she had this concept that you kind of felt like you needed to fulfill. How big a p an impact did that have on you as a human being? I think it had a huge impact on me and on all of us that we were... Um, shoved into these little um, identities that we were supposed to be, you know, my father was a preacher and we were supposed to follow a party line of um, behavior and it didn't leave much wiggle room to be who we are. And I think one of the things the book tries to address is the um, concept of recovery as leading you to the point where you actually know who you are and you love who you are. And I didn't feel that when I was growing up. I didn't know who I was. I didn't love who I was. And it's taken a lot of years to get there. Well, you really poured yourself out in this book. And I just want to, just for our, our listeners, tell us how long it took before you sought help and you sought help from 12-step, and tell us about that experience, would you please? Sure. Um, I really, I didn't know that I had a problem with alcohol per se, and I certainly didn't know I was bipolar until well into my, you know, into my 40s, but um, I, I just knew I was a, I was suicidal. I was screwed up. I was, um, I had this deep, dark place in my soul when I was a teenager. And I just thought I was just like, all teenagers are like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, but alcohol was really, uh, doing a number on me in my late teens and early twenties. And I didn't actually seek help. Help came to me. I mean, I, I sought help in the sense that one day I fell to my knees when I was 23 years old and I said, help, because from the bottom of my heart, I wanted something, someone to help me get out of this unbearable life I was leading. And I didn't know what that meant. I, I didn't know who I was talking to, who I was asking for help from, what I was asking for help from. Um, but little by little, in retrospect, I can see the help started to come. And then finally, when I was 25, um, it came in the form of someone who took me to my first 12-step uh, meeting. And after that, I've kind of continued to seek help along the way. 
And how long have you been sober now? 39 years. Wow, 39 years. And do you still sometimes attend 12-step meetings? Oh, all the time. All the time. I, I believe that's a big part of recovery for me is giving it back, um, giving back what was given to me so freely and um, reminding myself every day that um, alcoholism is a disease that's just waiting to in the bushes to ambush you. Um, and to uh, convince you that you can drink safely again. And um, I have to remind myself every day that that's not the truth. Was there a time when you didn't believe that it was a disease? I think when I first came into the 12-step program, I wasn't entirely convinced I was either an alcoholic or that it was a disease. I just knew my life was a total mess and I didn't know what to do about it. Um, and I kind of thought, oh my God, is this a cult I've gotten into? And, um, you know, are these people all crazy and everything like that? But the longer I stuck around and the more I identified with what people were saying, I mean, people would t share their stories and I would hear myself in all these stories from people who were so unlike me. And I began to realize that I was just like everybody else. I wasn't unique. I wasn't special. I just had the same symptoms that all these other people did. So if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it must be a duck, you know? Right. And this 12-step, this is part of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. correct? Yeah. 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 Have you been a sponsor for other people? Oh, yes, definitely. And could, definitely. I know that it's all confidential, but is there anything you can share about that experience of being a sponsor? Maybe someone that you helped or a story that you can share in spite of, you know, the fact that everything is confidential. Being a sponsor is almost more help to the person who's sponsoring than the person who's the sponsee. Um, I've had uh, sponsees who are very willing and gung-ho and, you know, dive into the program with both feet first. And, and then I've had others who are very reticent to kind of um, practice the program and then they disappear before too long. But I'll share one experience I had. Um, I was at a meeting one morning. I went early and I, I really wanted just to be alone. I didn't want anybody bothering me. I, I just wanted some time to think to myself. And I was sitting in the room and this woman walked in. We were the only two people in the room. And my inner voice told me, go over and talk to her. You haven't seen her at this meeting before. She may be a newcomer and go talk to her. And the other voice on my other shoulder was saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I can't be bothered today. I do plenty of good works. I, I don't want to do that today. And then the other voice was saying, but you need to do that. Go do that. So finally I got up and I went over and I talked to her and sure enough, she was brand new in the program. She was having a really hard time. And by the end of that conversation, I was sponsoring her and I sponsored her for about a year and then she moved. And um, I don't know if she's still sober or not, but that's the way sponsoring has come into my life. It often comes in just um, 
people appearing out of the woodwork that need help. But I, I love sponsoring people. I, I especially love sp sponsoring people who are new because I believe so strongly in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and in the help and the joy and the recovery it has given me that I would shout it from the rooftops that, you know, people get involved. And what would you say to someone who said, well, I tried it and it didn't work for me. It was too religious or it just I just didn't see eye to eye with their concepts. What would you say to, to that person? Well, I might say two things. I might have a conversation about the whole religious side of it because it's not a religious program. It's a spiritual program. Um, I certainly wouldn't try to convince them that they should continue to go or that they should change their belief system or anything like that, but I just encourage them to keep an open mind. Um, and just um, let people know that it's there if they, if they need the help. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is for people who want it, not for people who need it. Um, there's lots of other things out there that could maybe work for people, but other things didn't work for me, and this has, so... Do you see 12-step as being connected to mindfulness? Is there a mindfulness element there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the whole notion of, um, first of all, the spiritual part of the program of being connected to a higher power or a, some kind of universal being or creator or whatever you want to call it, you know, whatever you want to call it that's in your system, something bigger than you. It could just be the group of drunks that you're hanging out with. Um, that to me requires the ability to become focused, um, to focus on something outside yourself and to become receptive to something outside yourself. And I think that's an element of mindfulness. And um, there was something else I wanted to say about that. Um, I can't remember right now, but it maybe it'll come to me in a second. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm curious, when you were able to quit drinking alcohol, was there anything else that crept in? Because sometimes people say, well, then, you know, I started having this other issue or this other problem oh, or whatever. Definitely. So tell us about that. Uh, I, <laughs> my food, um, I had always had issues with food and I had been anorexic and bulimic and everything else in my teenage years. And my food went out of the window, um, my food disorder. So I joined Overeaters Anonymous as well. And for five years, I followed a program called um, Overeaters Anonymous Gray Sheet, which was a very, very stringent um, program that only allowed you to eat certain uh, ounces of food every day and certain types of food every day. And it was, it was crazy. I, I look back on it and I think it was crazy. <laughs> oh, really? Does it still <laughs> yeah. exist today? Uh, yeah, it does. It does. There are people who still do it. Um, I don't do it. I, I am much more, um, I don't know if I'm in denial about my um, relationship with food, but I don't think so. I'm pretty aware of 
what I put into my body. And um, I rely on programs like Weight Watchers that have a more balanced approach to eating that you can eat a piece of bread, you know, you can eat pasta, you can eat, you, you just, you need to watch the quantities you eat, you need to watch what you're, you just balance it out, be sensible. Um, I think that's what balance is the word that I use when I think about my food addiction now. Yeah, and certainly the mindfulness element, just being aware of what you are putting in your mouth and why, because so many times we do it for emotional reasons rather than yeah. because we're actually hungry, correct? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Or you're bored, you know, yeah. or, you're, or bored. you're watching the football game. Yeah. That's a great time to put away a lot of calories, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, I want to talk to you about your experience of being institutionalized because I know that's a big part of your story. Would you share that with us, Hope? Sure. Um, that was a very hard time in my life. Um, I, my father died and my mother had already died in a car accident. My father died and of cancer and I had been very close to him and my husband was going through some health issues at the time and um, which became very serious. And I had a bipolar breakdown, a manic breakdown and um, I ended up practically blowing up my family. I ended up having an extramarital affair and um, spending way too much money and being out of my mind, thinking I was someone I was not. And it was a very, very difficult time. And um, as the result of that, my husband, who has his own issues, um, you know, acted out a little bit and it, and I ended up feeling very suicidal. And so I was put into uh, an institution where I stayed for probably about a week or so. And my kids who were all very little at that time would come visit me and we'd be, I'd be in my little pajama outfit and they'd be there and we'd be painting um, ceramic angels and you know, little ceramic things. And, mm -hmm. and it was, it was so pathetic. And I felt so bad as a mother, i I felt like I was such a failure and like I had done all this horrible stuff to my family and they would cry and cry and cry when they had to leave me and I would cry. And, um, it was, it, I just felt hopeless at that point in my life, I think. Um, because the bipolar had come on me. I mean, I think I'd been bipolar most of my life, um, but no one had ever diagnosed me bipolar until I was institutionalized. And then I finally saw a psychiatrist who said, this behavior that you've been experiencing all through your adult life and into your teens and everything is bipolarism. And you just have been treated for the wrong illness. I was being treated for depression with Prozac, which was the wrong medicine to be giving me. Mm -hmm. um, so um, 
I felt a sense of huge relief at being told that I was bipolar, that I had that disease, just like I felt relief when I realized and accepted that I was alcoholic. Um, because finally I had a name for something that I was going through. And if I had a name for it, then maybe I could do something about it, you know, or at least seek help for it. So that's kind of what that was all about. Well, thanks for sharing that. It must be, it must be difficult to think back and, and to, you know, and to share that story. I'm so happy to be already working with a number of listeners as a mindfulness life coach and hypnotist. You might have heard of someone who's lost weight or quit smoking with the help of hypnosis. As a licensed hypnotist, I work with anyone struggling with an issue. Maybe it's sleep, maybe it's smoking or weight loss. Well, I've lost 35 pounds myself and kept it off using hypnosis. And now I'm offering a beta package and I'm really excited about this beta launch because it means big savings for you and it means I get the opportunity to work with people like you and I have openings for only three people so you need to act now. If you want to lose weight, I've created a video to help you called How to Lose Weight for Good. Watch the short video and then book a quick call with me. And you can jump right in now and you'll get 50% off the price of the package. So go to mindfulnessmode.com slash weight loss. And if you just want to book a time and talk directly to me, go to mindfulnessmode.com slash let's talk. So I look forward to connecting with you. Now back to the show. Tell me when you got to the point where you started to believe in yourself, started to believe I am enough. Hope is okay. I think that came so gradually for me. I would have little glimpses of it, like little inklings of feeling like I was okay. Um, mostly when I was working on some writing, I'd be working on a screenplay or someone would hire me as a ghostwriter and I'd, I'd feel like I have a purpose for being here or, you know, but honestly, <laughs> I don't think it was until I was in my, until I hit 60 that I honestly felt like I was okay. Um, and that because of the incident that happened with my husband and his transplant. Um, I, I think about it, I think, I don't know how you stay sober all those years, Hope, not feeling okay with yourself for so long and just persevering and being persistent and patient and not picking up a drink and staying on your medication and practicing and trying so hard to take all these suggestions that everybody's giving you and, and not feeling right about myself for so long. And then when um, Tom had his, his, he was told he only had three months to live and then he had a transplant and um, came out of it well and is now a personal trainer. And then I went on and started writing. My life changed. My life totally opened up and just started to blossom and um, 
I, I have to say, I really do like who I am today. I really feel like I could live on my own without, I mean, I don't need anything else in my life. I, I'm perfectly great just the way I am, you know, and I don't think I'm such a great person. I don't, you know, I'm not more special than anybody else, but I just feel this happiness at being me. I really like me. I think I'm funny. I think I'm cute. I think I'm um, intelligent. I, I think I'm creative, you know, and I appreciate all those things, all those gifts that God has given me. Um, and in a way that I appreciated them when I was a teenager before I started drinking and uh, before I started going a little cuckoo there. But, um, you know, I just... Uh, yeah, I like me. That is there's just awesome. It's just awesome to hear and and I think I think that's a place where so many of us would like to arrive, you know, where you know, you're just 100% happy with who you are. You don't need someone else or some you don't need to be in a certain situation or live in a certain house or whatever it is. You just are completely happy with who you are. I want to talk about your poetry. I know that's weaved through, throughout your life. And then you were invited to go to England and to <laughs> present there. Tell us about that experience. It must have been amazing. Well, it was. I entered a competition um, from the Ledbury Poetry Festival. Um, and I sent a poem called Lybrook Falls. Lybrook is a waterfall in Vermont that my husband and I hike to when we go up to Vermont. And I wrote this rather long poem about Lybrook Falls. And, um, and they asked me to come read it at the festival. So we're not people who travel very much. First of all, we don't have very much money. So we, you know, don't do that. But I told my husband, I said, I am not missing this opportunity to read my poem at this festival. So we went to England and this town was just your typical English town with the Tudor houses and the, you know, the thing in the marketplace. And it was charming. And uh, we stayed in a little Airbnb and um, hiked up in the Malvern Hills and we had such a good time. And and uh, sharing that poem was just so, it was such a wonderful experience just to, you know, stand in front of this crowd of probably somewhere between 40 to 60 people and, and share this poem, the only American there, the only foreigner there at the thing. And it, it was, it definitely was a great experience. It was fun. I'm sure it was. I want a glimpse into the funny hope the cute hope oh, that oh. that light side <laughs> i want to i want a glimpse for mindful tribe to see that funny side of you and where does that come out well i think i have a very english sense of humor because my father's my father was british so um you know I may think I'm funny, but you might not think I'm sure, funny. Sure, yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, like, I do. Because <laughs> um, my husband's a real good joke teller. He tells jokes very well. I don't tell jokes very well at all. I have a very dry, it's kind of like a, this is a bad analogy, I suppose, but it's 
it's kind of like a dry martini. I just, just very dry sense of humor. And, um, but anyway, um, yeah, so I was at a, a reading not too long ago where I was sharing some of uh, my a novel that I wrote. Um, and these women were asking me questions and they said, did you learn anything about yourself during the writing of this book? And I said, yeah, I learned how funny I am because some of my characters and the things that they do in these books are so funny. I'll have myself cracking up when I'm writing them. Um, I'm trying to think of examples of um, even the, just the characters themselves as they come out and, you know, um, (laughs) I don't know how to explain it, but I thought it might be a difficult question, and I haven't read any of your fiction, and I, I would like to, but uh, is there any poem or, or snippets that jump to mind that you could share with us that you've written? Yeah, I published one, I published one book of poetry called Taking in Air. Okay, Taking in Air? Yeah. Yes. And the first poem in it is called Prime. Okay. And... I'll read you some of this. Well, I'll read you this because it's not that long. My son, the grocer, tells me the oranges in the bowl have passed their prime. Really? I smell their sweetness still. At 63, I feel that I am in my prime. I felt this way at 34 when I skipped down the aisle with my new husband. We drove to Quebec City where I, with child, gorged on escargot and lumpy black caviar. We rode our bikes past waterfalls around small islands dotted with roses. Love settled like a veil over my shoulders, connected deeply as I was with this man, this child. Prime, I have fallen in love again not with another man, the same one rattles the bed with his snores, but with this newer vision of myself. The wind chimes outside our window, tell of a gentle breeze. Life in general bends as I pass by, careful not to trample the tender grass as I stand in the moonlight reaching for the stars. Wow. So that's that's one. I guess you can tell that that's quite emotional for me. <laughs> wow. That is really beautifully written. And I'm not surprised because, you know, your book, you know, reveals to me how talented you are and so on. But wow, you really have incredible talent with poetry. That is incredible. Thank you. And you've, you've, discovered yourself you've discovered so much about yourself in your life i want to talk about the fact that your book is based on the idea of remodeling a home where did you get that idea and just expand on that tell us a little bit about that well at the time that i i at the time that i came up with the idea i was working in a bookstore during the holidays part-time and I saw all these books with 
Chip and Joanna Gaines, you know, they're remodeling books all about their houses. And we had spent a lot of time in hospitals, by the way, with all those remodeling shows. And, um, and then I saw all these shelves of self-help books. And I thought to myself, why not blend those two ideas and take a life and remodel it the way you remodel a home? And so within a very short time, I'd quit my job at the bookstore and was writing the book. Um, so that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so, um, yeah, but that's, that's where it came from, was really working in that bookstore and seeing those two things juxtaposed. And um, I just thought what a great idea it was to think about, like, the faulty plumbing, the things we put into our organs and our, you know, our minds that are clogging us and everything else that, um, and the light coming in and the kid on the swing and all these, all these things, the more I wrote it, the more I kind of got into it. So, and I, and the chapter on debris was my, I think my favorite chapter with all the crap that you've got to get rid of before you can actually start, um, doing your remodeling. When did your book come out and where can we get it? It came out in 2019, I think. No, 2020. 2020 um, in May. And you can get it from Amazon, of course, and um, Barnes and Noble. Um, but also Warren Publishing is the publisher and you can get it from Warren Publishing. And if you get it from Warren Publishing, then I get better royalties. <laughs> oh, do you? Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the book is called Mindful Tribe, How to Remodel a Life by Hope Anderson. Anderson is A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N. How to Remodel a Life. I highly recommend it. And yeah, I, I think that it's brilliant the way you put this together and the analogies you you made. I think it's it's really a wonderful book. And I, I thank you for having the courage to write this book and share it. What are your plans now? Are you writing something else? I am. I'm working on a kid's book. Um, not a, you know, not a young kid's book, but a middle teen kind of book um, that's set in England. And um, I, I wrote a draft of it probably two years ago. And I've left it in a, on a shelf in my study thinking it wasn't any good. And I had somebody look at it recently and they said, you should dig this out and work on it. It's really got a lot going for it. So, um, and I'm working on trying to get a second book of poetry published. Um, I, I haven't had much luck with that so far. Um, it's funny because the first one was received so well so quickly, but, um, Anyway, so that's what I'm doing. And I have a sequel to my novel. Um, I have a novel called When the Moon Winks that is out, came out in 2019. And I have a sequel to that. Uh, the working title is Where the Wind Blows. And um, that one 
is written and it's in the process of being edited by my publisher. And is your publisher Warren as well? Yes. Was it difficult uh, making that connection with Warren Publishing? Was it difficult finding a publisher? Not really, because I had a, I had a, um, I self-published this book called The Book Sisters, um, my first novel. And um, I, I was working at the bookstore at a Barnes and Noble bookstore at the time. And I asked them if I could do a, um, what do you call it? A, a launch, a book launch at their store. Right. And they, they don't usually let young unknown authors do book launches at their stores. But the manager at the time was a wonderful guy named Tom Hayes. And I, when I went to him, I brought him this portfolio of t thoroughly um, organized description of how I was going to go about marketing this book launch and marketing the book and doing everything and everything and everything. He was so impressed. He said, of course, you can do the book launch here. That would be fine. So that night of the book launch, we had about 100 people come, which is totally unheard of. And um, so that was like amazing. So when um, I had written the second book, When the Moon Winks, I showed it to Tom and I asked him what he thought. And um, he said, you could probably get worn you know, I know some people, he said he had a publishing company, but he was like, this isn't for us, but try these gals at Warren Publishing and see if they like it. And they did. So, yeah. So it was all connection. You know, it always right. is connection. It's who you know. Sure. You didn't so, like send it out to 30 publishers or something. No, I've done that in the past with things. And, you know, yeah, I, I do that with my poetry all the time. I send my poetry out all the time and very little of it gets picked up but some of it gets picked up so well a lot good. of people self-publish would you ever self-publish again i don't like spending money on what i think somebody else should be paying for I see. um so i i um i i i have said unless i start really making some money at my I mean, if, if How to Remodel a Life were to become a success, which I would like it to, like to really hit the big time kind mm -hmm. of thing, mm -hmm. um, and I had some extra money around, I, I would still do hybrid publishing and possibly self-publishing. But until then, we really can't afford for me to do anything but traditional publishing. Sure. So, you know, so it's kind of like a financial thing that if I never publish another book because the money isn't there, then that's just the way it's going to be. So, sure. I always yeah. ask a question about bullying on my show because I've worked in bullying prevention for a long time. Do you have a story you can share with us where mindfulness would have made a difference? Yeah, I when I grew up, I was one of six girls and I was the only blonde and um, and I obviously had mental health issues, even from the time I was little. I wasn't like all the other sisters in the family. And um, they, they bullied me. Um, they told me I was adopted. They told me I didn't belong. They, you know, and I think if, although I don't even know if it's possible for a kid who's six or five or six years old to have 
high self-esteem. Um, although I don't know why not, but um, I think if I had known, if I had been more loving of myself, loved myself more at that time, knew what it was to take care of myself and to stick up for myself, um, I might not have had such a thin skin around their bullying and reacted to it quite the same way I did. But yeah. Wow. Wow. As we move forward in the interview, Hope, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. And the first one is this. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? The Dalai Lama. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Calm them down. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is huge. Um, I just breathe. I mean, I breathe when I swim. I, I breathe when I walk. I, I breathe whenever I feel agitated. I just, I just breathe. So you just put extra focus into it and think about your breathing and yeah. that it's kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I know that your books are fantastic. Do you recommend any other books that might be related somehow to mindfulness? Yes, I brought one with me, okay. which I don't know if you've ever heard of, but... This is called The Power of the Subconscious Mind. And, and I, um, who's, the, who's the author? It's Joseph Murphy. Okay. And this is a wonderful book. Um, and it has things in it like a happiness prayer and other um, things that I've used for meditation that have been wonderful helps to me um, along my journey. So... Well, thanks for sharing that. I'll put it in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. Yeah. And Hope, I also want to ask you, are there any apps of any description that you know of that can help with mindfulness? I'm not big on apps, so I'm not very helpful with that question. Sure, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Well, I really appreciate having this opportunity to talk to you. and And I do recommend your book, and I think it's just got so much heart to it and so much it's just so beautifully written so thank you for writing your book and as we kind of wrap up the interview do you have any words of advice for any of my mindful tribe listeners who may be right now struggling in some way struggling with loneliness or struggling with themselves do you have any words of advice that you could share Yes, I would say that um, practice the presence of God in your life. Practice the presence of whatever that power is in your life through breathing, through looking, through seeing, through being open. Just open your heart and um, let God in. And that's what sustains me is the practice of presence of God in my life. Thank you for being on Mindfulness Mode, Hope. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it very much. <laughs> All the best to you. Bye now. Bye. Thank you. 
Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for listening, for subscribing, for reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, and thanks to Erica Flint's Cascade Hypnosis Center for being our valued sponsor. Hey, Erica, we really appreciate you, and Erica is a terrific teacher of hypnosis, and I know that because I am a graduate of her program. Now, if you're a healer or a coach or a counselor or someone who just loves helping people, Consider the powerful results that can be achieved with hypnosis. You can become a hypnotist, just like I did. Contact the team over at CascadeHypnosisCenter.com. And if you'd like to work with me and break through some of those mind blocks, maybe lose weight, maybe quit smoking, maybe it's something else, I would be so thrilled to work with you. And as you've already heard on the show, I'm doing an exciting new beta launch. I've got room for three people. So reach out to me. Just go to mindfulnessmode.com slash let's talk for a free short conversation about what I can do to help you. I look forward to hearing from you. That's mindfulnessmode.com slash let's talk. So now take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.